Well, good morning, Harvest Church. My name is Matt Quintana. I'm the pastoral intern here this morning. I will be continuing our journey through Isaiah, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Isaiah chapter 19. We're going to be covering chapters 19 through 23. It's a pretty large chunk of text, so we're going to jump right in. Um, This section we're going to be looking at today is actually a part of a larger unit that stretches from chapters 13 through 23. Greg preached on chapters 13 through 18 last week, and we'll be continuing through what is often referred to as the oracles concerning the nations, this uh, collection of chapters. It's made up of these judgments or oracles against these non-Israelite nations, and so it's referred to as the oracles concerning the nations. Uh, Last week, we covered texts in chapters 13 through 18, which contained oracles about Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and Cush. Today, we'll finish out the rest of that unit with uh, texts that cover Egypt, Babylon again, Duma, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre. Now, I'm guessing that for most people here this morning, the list of a dozen ancient nations that I just rattled off means very little to you. It's likely that most of us couldn't locate any of them on a map. It makes this part of Isaiah confusing and seemingly far removed from us today. This entire section of Isaiah is difficult because not only are these uh, foreign nations listed, but there's elements that seem to be referencing specific historical situations, and then there's other pieces that use language that comes across as cosmic and universal. What's more, we're also dealing with this constant back and forth of pronouncements of judgment and promises of hope. And so, cumulatively, the force of these challenges can make chapters 13 through 23 feel quite bewildering. However, if we follow along closely, we'll find that this entire section is actually communicating a coherent message. It's communicating theological truths that are not just about ancient nations— but are meant for us as God's people today. There are several important themes that we'll see which continually pop up. There's threads that tie everything together, and there's a theological thrust that moves this entire section along. And so what I want to do this morning is lay out that message as simply as I can, and then work through our text and observe how uh, each chapter fits into that overarching idea. So here it is, the overarching message or the uh, truth statement, the main point of chapters 13 through 23 is Yahweh has an eternal plan. Yahweh has an eternal plan. That's the big idea, five words. There's four other key concepts here in this section that teach us about the divine plan. Uh, You can think of it maybe like an option on a computer when you click on something, and you get a little drop-down box, and four other options come up. And so there's this main theme of Yahweh's eternal plan, and we're going to see these four other elements that are tied together to tell us about Yahweh's plan. So here they are. One, Yahweh has an eternal plan that is completely certain. It's completely certain. No one, no thing can thwart it. He is sovereign. He is the king. He has a plan, and that plan will happen. So two, Yahweh has an eternal plan to judge all nations. 
because of the sin of his people Israel and the sin of the nations of the world, he will bring judgment upon them. We've seen already that Yahweh will use other nations to judge his own people, like Assyria, but then those nations are so proud and arrogant and sinful as well that he will judge them, and it's this cycle where Yahweh will extend his judgment and his justice to the entire world. Three, Yahweh has an eternal plan to restore Israel and save the nations. So even in light of that last point that Yahweh will judge all nations, he has an eternal plan to restore his people Israel, this righteous remnant that, uh, that survives this purifying, burning, and cleansing, and he's also going to save the nations, as Liam already hinted at. And the fourth element is Yahweh has an eternal plan that everyone consistently fails to acknowledge. His people, their rulers, the other nations, they are ignorant of, they turn away from the plan of Yahweh, they think that they in their own power can uh, make decisions that will change the course of their, their own lives, and yet Yahweh is in control even as they fail to acknowledge that he is. So, simply again, Yahweh has an eternal plan, and there's those four elements of his certainty of this plan, his judgment of all nations, his restoration and salvation of Israel and the nations, and then the fact that people fail to acknowledge his plan. So, Yahweh has an eternal plan. Simple enough? All right. So, as we work through the text, uh, we'll try to keep these ideas in mind. We're going to observe how this section really fits into this scheme and communicates all of these concepts. Before we move to chapter 19, though, it will be important to see how the message of Yahweh's plan has already been developed in Isaiah, so we'll quickly recap. Um, in the first 12 chapters of the book, the first major unit, the focus was primarily on God's plan for his people, Israel. It was a plan that consists of both judgment and then restoration. Isaiah 1 through 12 depicted Yahweh's promise to establish a messianic kingdom over all nations in chapter 2, 9, 11. And then he would redeem this righteous remnant from among Israel, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 4, chapter 11. However, this would only happen after a catastrophic judgment was brought on by the Assyrian Empire, who is brought in in chapter 7 and 8 and 10. And so as we move into the next section, the oracles against the nation, chapters 13 through 23, the focus is broadened to emphasize the ways in which Yahweh is now working among the nations, the entire world, both for punishment and for salvation. The prophecies in this section are not arranged in the order that they were delivered historically or in the order that they were fulfilled. It's not chronological. Uh, they've been arranged thematically, and they seem to focus on the relevance of all of these oracles to ongoing generations of readers. The opening chapter in uh, chapter 13, which is against Babylon, is placed first because it presents this day of the Lord in cosmic and universal proportions far beyond what would originally apply to the historical city of Babylon. It now applies to all the nations God will judge. The judgments in this unit are broadened and universalized to apply to all who oppose God's purposes. These future 
eschatological images continue through chapter 18, and it focuses our attention on God's future deliverance of his people, even in the midst of this judgment. This is going to be applicable to all time. It's not just a checklist of what God did for the people of Isaiah's day. It presents us with what God will do and what God is doing for his people, and this focus on the coming kingdom gives this whole unit a realization that is beyond the days of Isaiah. A super important text that we've looked at last week that expounds this concept of God's plan is in chapter 14, verse 24. Yahweh of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. I will break Assyria in my land. I will tread him down on my mountain. Then his yoke will be taken from them and his burden will be removed from their shoulders. This is the plan prepared for the whole earth. And this is the hand stretched out against all the nations. Yahweh of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, who can stand in its way? It is his hand that is outstretched. So who can turn it back? Take note of a few key words there. Okay, we've seen his plan that he has purposed that will happen. No one, nothing can stop it from occurring. It's the plan that he says has been prepared for the whole earth. And this is the hand stretched out. The hand stretched out meaning his his judgment stretched out against all the nations. He has planned it, therefore, who can stand in his way? No one. It is his hand that is outstretched, so who can turn it back? So here we have introduced this theme of the plan of God that is certain, that is for judgment, that is also for salvation, and yet is ignored. Also keep in mind the phrase outstretched hand. This becomes important throughout these chapters. And so, At the climax of chapters 13 and 14, which display the rise and fall of Assyria and Babylon, we are taught a key theological truth. Yahweh will use the rise and fall of arrogant kingdoms as an instrument to judge human evil until his purposes are finally accomplished. This passage offers the interpretive key for the remaining chapters 14 through 24. Yahweh has a plan that cannot be thwarted. So chapter 19 begins a pronouncement concerning Egypt. Look, Yahweh rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Egypt's worthless idols will tremble before him and Egypt will lose heart. I will provoke Egyptians against Egyptians. Each will fight against his brother and each against his friend, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Egypt's spirits will be disturbed within it and I will frustrate its plans. They will inquire of worthless idols, ghosts, mediums, and spiritists. I will hand over Egypt to harsh masters, and a strong king will rule it. This is the declaration of the Lord. And so we get into this oracle that is about Egypt, which of course, if you've read the Bible, you know is one of the arch enemies of God's people. Think back to Exodus when God's people were enslaved for years and years and years by this oppressive nation, and God powerfully rescues them and saves them in the Exodus. And so here, this woe that is pronounced against Egypt is that 
they will be judged. They will receive God's judgment in a catastrophic way. They will be turning against one another. They will be turning to idols and false, false gods. They will be taken over by harsh masters and by a nation that rules it, and this is what the Lord has planned. In verse 3, it says, Yahweh says that I will frustrate Egypt's plans. Yahweh has a plan. Egypt thinks they have a plan. Yahweh's plan wins. In verses 5 through 10, it continues this imagery of judgment. It talks about the Nile and the canals of Egypt being parched and dried up, similar to what happened in the Exodus. And this recalls some of the judgments that were poured out and plagues that were poured out on Egypt. In verse 11, the Lord condemns the folly of Egypt and their advisors. He says, the princes of Zone are complete fools. Pharaoh's wisest advisors give stupid advice. Verse 12, where are your wise men? Let them tell you and reveal what Yahweh of armies has planned against Egypt. Yahweh has a plan. He has a plan of judgment against Egypt. It cannot be stopped, and the wise men of Egypt cannot figure it out. They're ignorant to God's workings. And so this declaration of future judgment continues into verse 16, where Yahweh will uh, judge them, and they will be terrified of Judah, of God's people, in this ironic twist where now the people they used to oppress are the ones who stand over them. In verse 16, um, verse 17, rather, we see the plan of Yahweh of armies that he's planning against them. And so the catastrophic judgment that was described in the first 15 verses is a part of this larger plan we know that we just read of in chapter 14, the plan that the Lord has for the whole world. The hand that Yahweh of armies will stretch against them in verse 16 here is the same hand that was stretched out over all the nations in chapter 14, verse 26. And so we see these themes tying together about Yahweh's plan. Verses 18 through 25, though, are remarkable. There's this shift where another element of Yahweh's plan is brought in, and it's a plan not for judgment, but then for restoration. Look at these closely. These, are, these, these verses are, are incredible. On, the day, uh, on that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear loyalty to Yahweh of armies. One of the cities will be called the city of the sun. On that day, there will be an altar to, the, uh, to Yahweh in the center of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near her border. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of armies in the land of Egypt. When they cry out, when Egypt cries out to Yahweh because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a leader, and he will rescue them. Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and Egypt will know Yahweh on that day. 
They will offer sacrifices and offerings. They will make vows to Yahweh and fulfill them. Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing. But then they will turn to Yahweh, and he will be receptive to their prayers and heal them. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will go to Egypt, Egypt to Assyria, and Egypt will worship with Assyria. On that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing within the land. Yahweh of armies will bless them, saying, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance, are blessed. It's incredible. In these five on that day statements, these statements of what will be in this future day that Yahweh is preparing, Egypt is now worshiping the Lord. There's this ironic twist where these people who had been so against the Lord and his people are now brought in and they respond to the Lord. This language used here is is, it's fascinating. It picks up on the language used originally in Exodus of God uh, responding to Israel who was faced with oppressors and needed to be rescued and Yahweh made himself known. All these, these, these words in this language is then picked up and it's applied to Egypt. Egypt will call out to the Lord and they will be heard. They will be healed. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. These two nations that have stood against Yahweh and his people, this highway will bring them to worship the Lord. And we saw back in chapter 11, this messianic king, this offspring of David, would establish a highway where then the people of Israel would be brought back to worship the Lord. And now there's this highway established for the people, not of Israel, but of Egypt and Assyria. It's incredible that in this last verse, in verse 25, it says, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and oh yeah, Israel, my inheritance. How incredible is that, that these people who have been so against the Lord now are brought into worship. Yahweh's plan on that day is to bring all nations under his sovereign rule and his mercy. To judge them, but also to save them. Salvation through judgment, which is the title of this series in Isaiah. One commentator summarizes this well, Chris Seitz. He says, God's final word for the nations is not desolation, but worship and healing, and incorporation. Such healing will come only as God chooses to make himself known by his own act of free grace, enabling those who once persecuted his people and blasphemed his name to offer supplication and be heard. Amen. And so, we see this dual element of Yahweh's plan, and in chapter 20, it continues, and it interrupts with this uh, narrative insert, this uh, odd narrative of Isaiah, the prophet, who was told by the Lord to go uh, 
do this sign act to communicate something to the people. And so what he was told is, is go walk around completely naked. Go walk around completely naked for three years as a sign and an omen against Egypt and Cush. The Lord explains the purpose in, in verse 3. Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot three years as a sign and an omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, stripped and barefoot, with bared buttocks to Egypt's shame. Those who made Cush their hope and Egypt their boast will be dismayed and ashamed. And so this sign is to represent the way in which God will judge these nations and lead them into captivity and they will be taken captive as those who had taken captive God's people. It's a powerful message and yet you still feel bad for Isaiah because it's a, it's a rough job. <laughs> and this, this here though, again, it shows us another element of Yahweh's plan for judgment, Right? And so Yahweh will judge Egypt, but we just saw that he will also save them. Those who made Cush their hope and Egypt their boast will be dismayed and ashamed, it says in verse 5. Uh, and then in verse 6, the inhabitants of this coastland will say on that day, look, this is what happened to those we relied on and fled to for help to rescue us from the king of Assyria. And we see continually in this section, that those who put their trust in other nations, in other human powers, are continually let down. They are continually uh, dismayed and ashamed. If your boast is in humans and in human power, you will be abased. You will be humbled. And we see that so clearly in these sections. And this is a part of the Lord's plan of judgment and also of this ironic twist where the people don't even recognize that this is his plan. They are so confident in themselves, and yet Yahweh is working something that will completely overtake what they thought they had planned. In chapter 21, we move into a new, uh, new unit here, and there's a pronouncement concerning the desert by the sea, 21.1. As we continue uh, in this oracle, it becomes clear that this is referring to Babylon. This is in reference to uh, the nation of Babylon who we read in verse 9 has fallen. All the images of her God have been shattered on the ground. And so this tells of when Babylon, the nation that had judged the nation that had judged Israel, they are going to be judged. They're being judged by the Medes in verse 2, it says. And so we hear of this judgment, and we get a couple pictures of responses to this judgment, the outworking of God's plan. All right? Verse 3, we have the response of Isaiah. I'm filled with anguish. Pain grips me like the pain of a woman in labor. I'm too perplexed to hear, too dismayed to see. My heart staggers. Horror terrifies me. And then in verse 5, there's the contrast of the people of Babylon who prepare a table, spread out a carpet, eat and drink, rise up, you princes, and oil the shields. They act like nothing is wrong. They do not understand that they are going to be judged, that they are 
going to be overtaken, that they will be completely destroyed and fallen and shattered on the ground. They are not aware of the Lord's plan, and yet that doesn't stop it from occurring. The Lord judges this instrument of judgment that he had used because they had overstepped their their boundaries. They had thought that their power was their own, that they judged Israel and that was all their own doing when the Lord used them to do that and judged them for their own sin afterwards. And so Isaiah the prophet then tells the people who have been crushed on the threshing floor, verse 10, his own people, what he has heard from the Lord, and that is that their oppressor will be judged. And we'll see this later in in chapter 22 as well, that there's this contrast between Isaiah's response, his awareness of the Lord's working and his plan, and then those who have no idea. And so after a couple of more oracles in in verse 11 against Duma, and then in verse 13 against Arabia, we reach uh, chapter 22 where we see another outworking of the Lord's plan, and this time it's concerning, 22.1, the valley of vision. What's the matter with you? Why have you all gone up to the rooftops? The noisy city, the jubilant town is filled with celebration. Your dead did not die by the sword. They were not killed in battle. All your rulers have fled together, captured without a bow, All your fugitives were captured together. They had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me about the destruction of my dear people. For Yahweh, God of armies, had a day of tumult, trampling, and confusion in the valley of vision. People shouting and crying to the mountains. And so it becomes clear that the valley of vision, the town being referred to, is Jerusalem. It's God's people now. They're uh, included in this section of oracles against all these foreign nations. And here we have another contrast between the response of Isaiah to Yahweh's purposes and plans in the world and then the response of his own people here. They were spared from being completely overtaken at this point. Uh, They did not die by the sword. They were not killed in battle. And so they're celebrating their uh, jubilant and Isaiah says, what, why are you celebrating this? What is good about this situation? The rulers have all fled. They were all captured. All the fugitives have, have been captured together. They've fled far away. This is not something to celebrate. This is God's judgment upon us, and he will judge us more. And so he responds with more weeping, with more, uh, more lament, and yet the ignorant people of Israel continue celebrating, they have no clue what Yahweh is planning, what he is doing. Isaiah continues to describe their inadequate, their inappropriate response in verse 8. On that day, you looked to the weapons in the house of the forest. You saw that there were many breaches in the wall of the city of David. You collected water from the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem so that you could tear them down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the walls for the water of the ancient pool. But you did not look to the one who made it or consider the one who created it long ago. And this is exactly 
what I've pointed out with the last element of Yahweh's eternal plan is that people fail to recognize it, that they fail to heed his sovereignty. And so the Israelites trust in human resources. They trust in their own abilities to try and fortify their city. They did not look to the one who made it or consider the one who created it long ago. They're blind to the Lord's plan. And we saw this last week in 1710, where again, condemning his people, the Lord says, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and failed to remember the rock of your strength. They have failed to heed the Lord in his holiness and his plan. And so they will be judged on that day Yahweh of armies, he called for weeping, for wailing, for shaven beards, for the wearing of sackcloth. He was judging them. Verse 13, but look, joy and gladness. They did not get it. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so because of this, because they have failed to heed Yahweh's plans, they will be judged. The iniquity will not be wiped out for you people as long as you live, says the Lord of armies. In verse 15 and following, there's now this other narrative interruption, and it's this interesting account of someone named Shebna, who's a steward in charge of the palace, and he is condemned by Yahweh and by Isaiah for taking pride in himself, for taking his own initiative and trusting his own power and resources. He's removed from his office, and the Lord says that he will call for his servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and he's going to clothe him in royalty and replace Shevna with his servant Eliakim. He's a Davidic heir. He has the house of David on his shoulder, verse 22. He's going to be driven like a peg into a firm place. He's going to be firmly established. The Lord is going to remove this, uh, this ruler and then replace him with uh, someone who is his servant, he says. But yet, as you keep reading, in verse 25, there's this reflection where the peg was driven into a firm place, but it will give way, it will be cut off and fall. The load on it will be destroyed. And so this servant, Eliakim, who replaced this unfaithful servant, Shevna, even he will be cut off. And this hints at when this Davidic heir is cut off and the nation goes into exile because they will be judged. The point in these last two chapters I think we can, we can draw is that Yahweh is working out his plan and even his own people are unaware of it. You would expect Babylon and Assyria and these other nations not to be aware of it and yet his own people, they forgot the one who created all that they had, who created them, they did not pay any attention to him. They respond inappropriately, which leads to their downfall. And so we found these negative examples of responding to the plan of the Lord, responding to the day of the Lord. And we also then get this example of Isaiah who responds righteously. So we too should heed this uh, this encouragement that we should trust in the Lord alone and we should be aware of what the Lord is doing and not trust in our own powers. And the final chapter of this unit, chapter 23, moves on to this last nation, the nation of Tyre. 
and it pronounces this, this woe, this uh, lament song. Tyre, it, it seems, is this uh, vastly important economic nation. They have uh, impacted so many different nations, Tarshish, Cyprus, Sidon. All these nations depend on them for uh, their economic and trades, and yet the Lord judges them, he humbles them, and it leads to the wailing of all those who depended solely on them. They did not depend on the Lord, they depended on Tyre, and so they are wailing, they are ashamed, they are uh, in anguish over the news about Tyre. Verse 5. Who planned this, though? Who planned this judgment, this toppling of Tyre, who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose traders are princes, whose merchants are the honored ones of the earth. Verse 9, the answer, Yahweh of armies planned it. He planned to desecrate all of Tyre's glorious beauty, to disgrace all the honored ones of the earth. He stretched out his hand over the sea. Verse 11, he made kingdoms tremble. And so the Lord judges this other nation who had been used to judge his own people. They had become too haughty, too arrogant, and so he judges them. In verse 13, it brings back in the mention of Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, Babylon, a people who no longer exist. Assyria destined it for desert creatures. So he calls Tyre to look at Babylon, who he's destroyed, who he's judged. Babylon was a tool used to judge Tyre, and now they no longer exist. God continues to usurp these nations who become too self-dependent, too arrogant, who are unaware of his plan. And so the chapter ends with verses 15 through 18, which then describe a future day after the judgment of Tyre, it says, On that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the lifespan of one king, but at the end of the 70 years, what the song says about the prostitute will happen to Tyre. Pick up your lyre, stroll through the city, you forgotten prostitute. Play skillfully, sing many a song so that you will be remembered. And at the end of the 70 years, Yahweh will restore Tyre, and she will go back into business prostituting herself with all the kingdoms of the world throughout the earth, but her profits and wages will be dedicated to Yahweh. They will not be stored or saved, for her profit will go to those who live in Yahweh's presence to provide them with ample food and sacred clothing. And so in this ironic twist, Yahweh restores this nation he judged, and they return to exactly what they were doing, prostituting themselves with the nations of the world, it says, and yet, all of her profits, all of her wages will be holy to the Lord. They will be for his people. And this is then picked up later in the book of Isaiah. It becomes important in chapters 40 through 66 where we see the remnant will return and with them will come the wealth of the nations. The nations will come in worship and also will dedicate their wealth to the Lord. And so here, in this ironic twist, the Lord uses this unfaithful nation to bless his own people. And so we reach the end of the oracles against the nations. 
hopefully you remember the main points that I brought up at the beginning. Here they are again. Uh, Yahweh has an eternal plan. It's the main idea. And there's these four components of this plan. It's completely certain. It involves judging all nations. It involves restoring Israel and saving the nations. And everyone consistently fails to acknowledge it. These chapters have made it resoundingly clear that Yahweh's sovereignty over human pride and arrogance reaches to every nation on earth. It's not just to Israel, it's to all. Back in chapters 2 through 4, God announced judgment upon Israel for their haughtiness, for their arrogance, their blind disregard of his glorious presence. So in the same way, Yahweh takes his indictment beyond Israel's borders to include all nations with a grandiose claim to independence and self-determination. The Lord alone is the sovereign king, and he stands against all forms of human pride and self-indulgence wherever they're found. He uses the mighty to execute judgment against a people who refuse to acknowledge his saving presence. And then, at the same time, he judges that agent of judgment on the exact same grounds. All military and political strength, no matter how shrewd or carefully wrought, is nothing before the wisdom and counsel of the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh rules the destinies of nations and kings. As we read later in Isaiah 40, verse 15, Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. Therefore, all political scheming that takes place independent of trust in the Lord is utter folly. And that's what we've already seen in chapter 7 when Ahaz refuses to trust in the Lord. It's what we'll continue to see in the chapters to come where Israel repeatedly turns to foreign nations and human power over their God. In the book of Isaiah, Israel's God is not in a contest to prove his superiority over the gods of other nations. Israel's God is the one God of all the nations. This is declared so bluntly in Isaiah 45. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked, Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. One of the primary purposes of chapters 13 through 23 is to establish this truth. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of all peoples. He's the judge over all forms of human pride and idolatry. But at the same time, the oracles concerning the nations reveal Yahweh as the God of the nations, not only in judgment, but also in salvation and restoration. They envision a future in terms of the encompassing of the nations within the sovereignty and the rule of God. And so above all, chapters 13 through 23 function as a witness to the ultimate victory of the reign of God. The Lord's plan is so much bigger than simply punishing the nations. He plans to convert even those whom his people most love to hate. 
this section reaffirms what was so beautifully foretold in chapter 2. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. Finally, the oracles concerning the nations provide a promise of hope for God's own people, Israel. Though sin will ultimately be punished on a cosmic scale, Yahweh remains a refuge and a sanctuary for those who humbly depend upon him. In 14.1 it said, For Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel again. Now, I realize that my sermon this morning might not have seemed especially practical. I didn't spend time suggesting ways that you could respond to this message and apply it to your life. And that's because the Bible is not simply a manual or handbook for life. And so when it comes to something like the book of Isaiah and the passage that we're in today, you're not going to walk away with a to-do list or a clever outline for how to apply this text. But what I hope you have not missed is the profound impact that Isaiah's vision of God's sovereignty and justice and the hope of his kingdom should have on your heart and mind. Texts like Isaiah 13 through 23 do ultimately shape the thoughts and lives and actions of the believer, but it does so more like pictures at an art uh, exhibition than like commands from a drill sergeant. And so let this text, let this book Let the word of the Lord shape your heart and your mind. Let it marinate in your heart. I'd encourage you to spend time this week going back through this section and just sitting in the beauty that it contains. In chapter 12, we we found a song of praise which extolled Yahweh for his salvation and his deliverance. 12.4 reads, Give thanks to Yahweh, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted, sing to Yahweh, for he has done glorious things, let this be known throughout the earth. And in chapter 25, which we'll look at next week, it proclaims, Yahweh, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. This, in a nutshell, is the function and the intention of the oracles against the nations, chapters 13 through 23. Yahweh has a plan. It is certain he's going to judge and save even if his people don't acknowledge it. And so we should, like these last two songs in chapter 12 and 25, also pursue these things of exalting the Lord, singing his name, the glorious things he's done, praising him for his plans formed long ago, because he is the one and only king. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your power and your might. You alone are the king of the earth. You alone are the ruler Sovereign one, we admit that far too often we fail to acknowledge you. We trust 
in ourselves. We trust in human inventions and might. And yet you, in your grace, through the blood of Christ, have redeemed us and washed us. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more aware of your plan and your workings among us as your people and among the nations. Would we respond to you? Would we be shaped by this vision of salvation and the kingdom? And Father, would we remember you? Would we trust in you? Would we frequently recall all that you have done for us? We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.